welcome back to the Middling Alum podcast. My guest this time is Dr. Lucy Ryan. Lucy is a leadership coach, consultant, author, and a passionate advocate for women's professional development. She has a master's in positive psychology and lectures in positive leadership at the University of East London and is an honorary research fellow at the University of Liverpool. She's the author of Lunchtime Learning for Leaders, published in 2021, and more recently, her doctoral research project explored the phenomenon of midlife for professional women and resulted in the publication of her latest book, gloriously entitled Revolting Women, Why Midlife Women Are Walking Out and What to Do About It, published by Practical Inspiration Publishing. Welcome to the podcast, Lucy. Thank you so much, Emma. It's a joy to have you here. And I, I was just saying off air before I um, hit record, I don't think I've ever underlined so many passages <laughs> in one book at one time. But yeah, I, I absolutely kind of tore through this and uh, uh, nodding along and sort of jabbing yeah, the air. Certainly, um, it certainly resonated with a lot of women. <laughs> and congratulations. Yeah, you've had lots and lots of, of press interest, quite rightly so, yeah. uh, in the book. In a terrific kind of book launch. But if it's okay with you, I might start off with one of the passages that I've uh, Mm. vehemently underlined slash highlighted, and I'm going to read it out. The middle-aged woman is either too mad, bad, or sad to take on a serious leadership role with her responsibilities and physical problems proving unassailable, or she's not available. This is the woman problem. That is... Women can only blame themselves for their lack of success in the promotional field, their lack of self-confidence or their inability to juggle. Women are not confident enough, ambitious enough or resilient enough. They must lean in and attend more workshops. They don't sell themselves well enough. Their bodies let them down. They're not young enough, pretty enough or thin enough. Pause for breath. <laughs> uh, so that, yeah, I think that that sort of sums up a lot of what the book is 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 about. But also, then you you sort of follow that up, and you know, talking, you know, you're looking really about the sort of how this sort of exodus yes. of women at midlife from the workplace, you know, how that happens, and you sort of you pin that on three main sort of I pillars, do. if you like. So the, the, so yeah. the maintenance of power, the collision of midlife changes and a revolution against gendered ageism. That's right. And, and sort of unpack a lot more of that in, in great detail in, in the book. But let's let's maybe let's row back first to um, before the book was written, before mm-hmm. you did your PhD. Yes. Um, because you had quite the struggle finding somewhere to, in inverted commas, allow you yeah. to do the research. Yeah, you know, you've got to find a supervisor to do a PhD. So, you know, a bit like a book proposal, you tout it round. Um, And because there was quite a gap in the literature, Mm -hmm. I naively thought that a university would go, oh, lovely. Goody. (laughs) But but it absolutely wasn't the case. It was considered, uh, the words that I heard most often was that it was unpublishable um, or uninteresting. And it was always said with a sense of embarrassment. I think some of that has changed in the last five years, Emma, in mm. that uh, the menopause, there is, there is uh, you know, considerable academic interest as well and academic papers. But actually midlife per se and the broader issues are still really quite unreported on. It's almost like... That's the whole thing of, you know, we, we, they'd quite like us to just sort of fade quietly into the background. I call it the kind of silent revolution in that, you know, for at least a decade, 
um, you know, middle-aged women, just as they're kind of nudging up into positions of power, are either stepping down, stepping out. And it's all been done quite silently. Women haven't shouted, the organisations haven't shouted, um, academia's not really written about it. So, you, you know, not only did it take a bit of time to find a supervisor up for this challenge, but also to, to, to get it out to the broader public. Mm. And actually, there's a really interesting, lovely parallel between, so you, with Dorothy Byrne, I think, wasn't it, who yes. found you as a PhD yes. supervisor, but she also, uh, the, the Davina documentaries wouldn't yes. have happened without her, because I think, again, they were really struggling to yeah. get that those programmes yeah. commissioned, and she yeah. sort of stepped in and, and made yeah. it happen. She's so. been a massive advocate for women, and particularly middle-aged women, for a long time, and I was coaching her. Oh, and um, it was in a coaching session. She said, how's it going? How's PhD? And I was going, it's not going. <laughs> I can't find a supervisor. And she hit the phones, ringing around all her influential kind of contacts going, why has Lucy not got a supervisor? <laughs> Brilliant. That's a wonderful women supporting women story. It was. It was. <laughs> yes. um, and how many, how many different women did you interview for the I book? 40 women of all uh, different uh, sectors and different states of middle age. So you have to prove that your data can be generalised enough. Mm. So I had to have uh, women of, you, you know, in different states with, without children. Uh, we look at race, we look at sexuality. And that wasn't a, a focus of it, but I still wanted to make sure that I... Uh, covered a broad spectrum of women's experience. I did stop halfway through because I felt like a lot of the women I was interviewing had financial choice, Emma. Mm. So I felt like they could choose what they wanted to do at middle age. They could step out if they wanted to. They could take a lower paid job. And I felt that there were a whole swathe of women who didn't have financial choice. And I was interested in talking them. So I stopped my data collection halfway through and looked for, um, you know, a whole new strata of women. And um, so, and one of the things that you, you talk about, I'm just sort of running through some of the notes that I've made, you talk about um, the Hampton Alexander Review, yeah. sort of trying to sort of dig into some of the reasons for gender inequality at, at sort of top yeah. levels of companies, yeah. which is... It's quite shocking, isn't it? It is a shocking it's list. I mean, you, you know, you say this of, you know, your favourite number 10. Uh, we've already got one, thanks. We're done. It's someone else's turn. Yeah. So the government, instead of doing quotas, recommended reporting, holding companies to account through reporting. And so they had the Lord Davis report, and then that was taken up by Hampton Alexander. But there was still, whilst the non-executive director population was increasing, the executive director, employed executive director, was flatlining and still is between 11 and 14 percent. So they did a further government report to try to understand. And that's where I cover those 10 reasons as to why men say there aren't enough women in positions of power. Um, including, you know, they're not up for it, they're not able, they're not capable, they're not around, or we've got one, it's okay, we've 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 done it. And you talk, uh, or you, you, I think you quote uh, one of your interviewees at, at one point talking about this sort of 
tsunami of stuff (laughs) Uh, and I think elsewhere you call it call it that sort of unique collision of stuff that is this sort of perfect storm isn't it often not always in midlife Um, but again I think you know you've got some statistics about the sort of the number of people who are half of your um, interviewees had one or more parent with, right, dementia, with dementia caring so yeah. caring responsibilities yes caring for sort of perhaps a seriously ill partner or a sibling yeah. helping older children cope with mental illnesses you know or yeah. you know struggling yeah. somehow yeah. so yeah we're <laughs> we, we we've got all of this and we're coping with whatever's going on in the workplace and potentially our own sort of physical transformation transition it's exactly right and it you know that's why i discuss that women are often overwhelmed temporarily i must add Mm. with um physical mental emotional and practical challenges the practical challenges often being extraordinary the parental care really is a big challenge and with 91% of women taking the lead on that you know it's it's massive Emma and I I have personal experience of that so you know Steve my partner and I three of our four parents uh, had dementia Mm. and you know so we spent a decade up and down the motorways caring for them or you know running to calls of care so I think it really is when you when you couple that up with the menopause, with older motherhood, with practical issues of our children, often with mental health challenges, there is a moment where you'll find that professional women, senior women go, okay, I need a break. Enough is enough. And they want to have some flexibility. They want to step out. Mm. And often that flexibility isn't there. So they step out and then they can't step back in. Yeah, and I think that's something. Uh, we'll maybe come back uh, a bit later to sort of you know what um, the sort of the positive side of things of what yeah. organisations can do to support. Yeah. But I think yeah, so yeah. so often that that understanding is is absent, isn't it? That that this is wanted to you know seriously wanted to retain and support these people. That it is you know that bit of flexibility for a period of time. Maybe it's a year. Maybe it's a couple of years, um, and and just sort of having that realization that uh yeah it, it's not that that people necessarily want to step out but they just feel that they have no choice they have no choice and often you know um it's only about five one of my interviewers she just needed five weeks mm. um, you know and organizations are well set up for this they do this for maternity they do it mm. for maternity it's not like we do not know how to do this um but elder care is still very much flying under the radar for organisations. And I think there's another point about looking after our parents is often women want to do this. It's often classed as a burden. Um, But often women want to do this. They want to look after their parents when they're dying. And they want that space and time to do it. And then they have all this energy ready to put back into work. Mm. Yeah, to about companies realizing that actually the you you get it back in 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 droves if you if you give that sort of that loyalty you get it back and people are you know very happy to to sort of stay and and thrive once they're over that 
kind of hiccup. Absolutely. And, you know, I know that not all women go through this, but a significant proportion of both women I interviewed, I think 70% of the women I interviewed were in a state of flux. You know, I felt so concerned for those who just had to step out and had no choice and then just couldn't get back in. That's, can we sort of delve into some of the research that that your research that you talk about? Because your so the first one is is David Karp, um, and sort of noting the difference between genders at that yeah. sort of fifty years yeah. and above mark. Yeah. So yeah, can you can you explain a bit more about that? Because I think that's, that's really interesting, and the sort of the follow on stuff that we'll hopefully talk about too. Um, I call it the career clock because. And there's only that one piece of research about this, apart from mine, I must stress that. And there is a sense that women and men are working to slightly different career clocks. So women have these zigzag careers, or as Helen Tupper calls, these squiggly careers. Squiggly, I love the squiggly Um, careers. So they're stepping in, stepping out, and and it is um, pretty zigzag. Men commonly have more linear careers. So they work their way up in a more linear, full-time fashion. When they get to round about 60, mm. conversational, 55, 60. Ready to go now. <laughs> ready to go. What happens with women is very commonly, round about 55, they're ready again to step into their own. They've, they've, they've had a step out, and then it's like at 55, 60, Plus, it's like, right, okay, mm. I'm ready once again. New chapter. My second spring, really. second wind. Second spring, <laughs> chapter, all of that. And a lot of the that uh, perfect storm is over. And they are full of all this vibrancy, vivacity, ready to give back. So there is this difference in career clock. David Karp said, just as women, um, just as men are turning off women are turning on and I certainly saw that very strongly mm. and, and and again yeah companies I just need to be able to wrap their yes. corporate brains around this yes. and and tailor things accordingly it's not that everyone is sort of you know suddenly ready for the golf course it's exactly right you know and if we could work to different career clocks that would be so exciting for an organisation. You know, we are entering the era, after all, of 50-year careers. So this idea that everyone's going to work full-time feels faintly foolish. Um, and I think we really need to have very good discussions as to how we can manage people's different career clocks, different sabbaticals, stepping back in at different ages. Mm. And, and and yeah, potentially sort of having that, you know, I think I think a lot of people get or a lot of women, certainly I see sort of getting to that midlife point and sort of, you know, the sort of all of the questioning that comes in and sort of reevaluating and, and sort of like yourself, you know, going going and sort of doing research or yes. changing careers or, you know, doing a degree yeah. later in life and, and yeah. having that pivot and coming back with all of this kind of renewed enthusiasm yeah pivot's a good word for it but very commonly they 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 want to re-enter the organization that they just want um 
some flexibility with it. Mm. You know, as one uh, woman said, I want to feed all parts of my life. And they they are resisting and revolting against <laughs> this full-time foolishness. Yeah, it's sort of not willing to compromise to get kind of this prize in inverted commas if that means, yeah, I've got to, you know, I can't do my, well, paddleboarding or my yeah. <laughs> you know my volunteering or whatever it is right because whatever it is they want to hence you've got a an exploding non-exec director population of women mm. so therefore everyone go we've got 40 percent women on the board tick um so the statistics are playing into the hand of women leaving silently mm. but we need to look a bit more detail below the numbers statistics at the employed statistics and to me this kind of burgeoning 11 percent that really hasn't shifted is is the issue let's come on then if we can to your uh what you call your 10 provocations for change Mm. to uh so that what organizations can must do yes really um so the first one uh, uh, that I'll, I will say is, it, well, maybe not the first in your list, but the first one that I've picked out because it's of interest to me is about how menopause-friendly uh, yes. an organisation is. Yeah. Um, I mean, is that something that that some of your interviewees talked specifically about? For sure. And, you know, when I was doing my research, Emma, it was just on the cusp of the menopause starting to be talked about, you know, in the workplace. This has only been about five years old now that the menopause has started to be talked about in the workplace. There were very few organisations that had a menopause policy before just five years ago. And so many women, everyone brought it up, the menopause. Some women had sailed through it and, and actually felt guilty for that. And some women were in the absolute throes of it and and trying to work out how do I present in the boardroom when I'm hot, sweaty, forgetful. And what they really wanted was a normal conversation about it. Mm. They wanted it just part and parcel of the conversation. Same as we have maternity conversations they wanted a conversation about the menopause and to know there was somewhere they could go and someone they could talk to. So I think being menopause friendly is very commonly about having a conversation um, and knowing there's a policy and knowing there's some flexibility about it. Let's have a look at some of your other sort of challenges mm. for for, for organisations. I mean, one of them, you know, is talking about the, the actual data. You know, are companies actually looking at this and, you know, recording what their performance is yeah. like at the moment in order that they can sort of, you know, benchmark and, and see if they're they're making positive difference? Agree, agree. Um I mean, my first kind of, if you like, provocation for change is, are you prepared to take this seriously? Mm. I think that um, one of the issues within organisations is they've played lip service to the attrition and the retention of their midlife female population. Mm. So my first point, yeah, absolutely. My first point is, are, are you prepared to take this seriously? And if you are, 
then there are some relatively simple steps to take, which is all about adding gendered ageism to the diversity agenda, looking at your age data, finding out why the women are leaving, tracking it. Um, so, so there's some work to be done about the data before you even look at, okay, how do we then retain them? Mm. And I, you know, I think that every organisation should conduct a midlife MOT, a midlife check-in. Well, that was going to be my next one because oh, that's, okay, that's number on. four on your list. I just, right. I love, I love the idea. So, you know, I hope this is something that that becomes more and more uh, sort of prevalent and, and actually used in in companies. And you know, not just as you say, not just for women, but no, no or, you know, we're not a monolith. So everybody's needs and circumstances and kind of tsunami of stuff is going to be different. Yeah. But yeah, yeah how about asking people what they need and then yeah. giving it to them? How about Gloria Steinem said, um, you know, every revolution starts with a conversation. And that to me is what the midlife check-in is, which is for all genders going just, you know, how is it going for you? And what do you need at this stage? Because there have been some big examples of men just about to be promoted to CEO and, and leaving shutting themselves away, having breakdowns. So there, there are male examples of this um, that, funnily enough, are more publicised than the silent exit mm. of um, middle-aged women leaving. So it is a subject that needs to be taken seriously. And I think a midlife check-in, a midlife MOT, would be a cracking idea in an organisation. There you go. If anyone's listening and working in HR or has people working in HR, let, let me please try, try and seed this idea around because I think it would be a real game changer. Yes. Um, what's the next one on the list, uh, and we've already talked a little bit about this, is about how flexible they are as a, as a sort of a company. Yes. And I think, you know, we've all in that sort of COVID world seen just how much work can be done a remotely or be flexibly or see a combination of those and and mm. I you know I I think it's it's a little sad to see companies kind of going back the other way and and sort of mandating the yeah. whole sort of bums on seats things I mean I think one of the only good things to come out of the pandemic is that suddenly companies realized they could exist and indeed thrive flexibly and so I thought, perhaps naively, that that would be the direction we would go and that would be the direction we would stay. Uh, but what seems to be happening is we're moving back to full time, back to full time in the office. And yet we know that uh, companies can exist in a more flexible way. So I think we actually need a much bigger systemic conversation about 50-year careers mm. and stepping in and out and how to manage it. Yeah, much more creative Much more creative solutions. Is a good word for it. Mm. Creative solutions for flexibility and a recognition that this is what um, women can offer post, uh, post-menopause, post kind of 55, post-60. Mm. And I think you've talked a little bit about things like 
job sharing, for example, where you've got sort of the whole two heads are better than one uh, thing and, and, you know, whatever that, whether that looks like, you know, both of them working three days with a sort of a day overlap in the middle or... And yeah, it doesn't I, have to be two women, right? It could be a woman and a man and, or two men. Or, you I know. just am still staggered that job sharing is not really common. Mm. And uh, there are just, a, I've only come across a couple of examples now of, uh, you know, two women who, who go to job interviews as a pair. And yeah. you know, it, it's almost like companies is, are just, you know, they've got their hand up going, no, it's just too complicated. We, could, we just can't be bothered. <laughs> I know. And it's really not. So uh, job sharing, the, the, all that flexible working really needs a good conversation. Mm. And job sharing is a very decent, obvious solution. Yeah. It just seems very, very short sighted to think, to keep that sort of, that stale idea that you know a job has to be nine to five Monday yeah. to Friday you know that's 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 our kind um, of benchmark you're right you're absolutely right Emma and I think that we've got quite used to this lower down an organization sure you can work three days a week we can make this work but it strikes me that the minute you start moving into a senior more senior position yeah the door slams that shut flexibility becomes very slippery and everyone goes, no, no, you can't do this. This mm. is really impossible. We need you here full time. Yeah, you're just, yeah, you're not up to it. You're not taking this seriously. Yes. We can't, yeah, we can't take yeah. the risk. Yeah, that's right. I guess we do, do need some trailblazing organisations to be to be trying this out in the same way that some have been trialling, you know, sort of four day weeks over the last yes. sort of year or so. And yes. sort of so that we've Great got success. some case studies and... Yes, yeah. we do. We need more trailblazing organisations. There are some doing some good work, but but they are few and far between. So we need good trailblazing organisations that we can highlight, we can talk about, we can um, take to the marketplace and go, look, this works. One of the, the other sort of challenges then is about sort of sponsoring uh, midlife women um, so I think there's a lot of talk around mentoring women yeah. at sort of early career stages yeah. and then that sort of fizzles out and it's like okay now you, you're kind of off you go yeah. you're on your own yeah I think when I run women in leadership programs I now pretty much always insist that there's a sponsor attached to every person on it um, and that sponsor doesn't have to be a woman and, and usually isn't because most of the people at the top of the organisation are men. But once you've got a sponsor who guides you through and helps you navigate the politics of the organisation and just opens some doors for you, that's really powerful. They're not a mentor, they're not a coach. They are literally, as the word says, there's a sponsor. And there's some good data that sponsors really help um, women navigate uh, senior management, senior leadership. And it's good old fashioned networking, isn't it, Emma? Mm. You know, I always, uh, you know, men have always been really good at that. And they've been really good at informally sponsoring each other. And I was always intrigued by all the studies that said what happened is that women were working nine to five and then running to go and sort out their families at home. And they weren't going to the pub. They weren't doing the informal networking. They had no mm. out of work sponsorship. And 
so this is all about doing in work sponsorship yeah and and you know i probably a lot of people listening have already heard some of these stats around uh you know companies performing better when they've got sort of better gender kind of balance so um yeah they're sort of right companies with more than 30 percent of female executives were more likely to outperform companies with fewer at the top i'm not sure where that one comes from i've just pulled that from one of your uh well it's a government report of 2022 so in 2022 government commissioned a a major report again to try and encourage this (laughs) and there is so much data around that the tipping point is 30%, that once you've got 30%, same as actually three women on the board, by the way, that their voices become uh, normalised. And uh, 30% of women in the top quartile of your um, organisation is a tipping point for more positive performance. And yeah, so the, sort of the first sort of two thirds of the book, you're you're kind of talking about your... Uh, your research and and your your interviewees and and sort of their particular stories and and then the sort of the the, the last part is about this sort of positive agenda for change yes. if you like yeah. uh, encouraging us to to revolt <laughs> and yes. uh, not to go quietly into yeah. the night yeah um, yeah I mean I'm encouraging women to revolt noisily and I'm encouraging organisations to revolt and take it seriously creating change and not just yes. uh, sticking with the comfortable status quo we call it <laughs> <laughs> good well fantastic i you know i would uh, as i say I, I i so many parts of this book i could have kind of quoted back that i've underlined highlighted i encourage you all to to read it and i will drop a link into the show notes um with the full details for where you can find both the book and uh, lucy herself if you want to find her follow her on linkedin uh read more uh, but yes what's what's next in terms of uh, your your research now now that you've gained all of this uh, <laughs> me- media acclaim and traction yeah. hopefully next time you put a research proposal together they'll be biting your hand off <laughs> one would hope so emma one would hope so <laughs> but have, have you got plans to to, to do another sort of a, a follow-on study from this one um, if I do a follow-on study, I will look at men at middle age uh, because that also really interests me. So that's that's what I would look at for a follow-on study. Yeah. At the I moment, think... I just need a break. <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, thank you. That seems like a good place to draw it to a close. Thank you so much for your time. I'm I'm so delighted that you've had so much interest in the book. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Emma. Thank you so <laughs> much for having me on this. You've been listening to the Middling Along podcast. Do remember to subscribe to be notified when the next episode is live. And why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did... I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.